Welcome to Dissecting Education, where we take a spherical look at the education landscape from many vantage points. We're your hosts, Melanie Hicks and Rachel Jones. We're excited you're here with us. Let's get started. Hello, and welcome back to another episode of Dissecting Education. Today, we're here with Kristen Montgomery. She's an international educator originally from Wisconsin. She decided to get her teaching license after spending a year working as an English assistant in a bilingual school in Madrid. License in hand, she jetted off to teach French and Spanish at a boarding school in Switzerland and later Singapore. Kristen came back to Wisconsin to teach Spanish dual language immersion in public schools for six years and is currently on a year leave from that job to teach in Colombia. She's an advocate for language learning and language learners. Kristen has visited all 50 states and over 50 countries and counting. We cannot wait to hear what she has to share with us. All right. Well, welcome. And we're so excited to have you on the show today. Uh, why don't you start by telling us a little bit more about you that we didn't just hear in your bio? Sure. Well, um, my name is Kristen, and I'm currently living and teaching in Medellin, Colombia. Um, I've taught in five different countries around the world now. And um, I really love to travel and love to see different education systems. And um, it's, it's really just been a passion of mine. That's awesome. What, where do you think you, you got the, the bug? I know in your bio, you said, you know, that you had this inspiration from, um, uh, from a travel experience to get your teaching license, but where do you think the fire for you, um, or what, what is special about teaching, you know, foreign language and English in other countries and, and all of these experiences? Yeah. So, um, well, I think from an early age, I had a father that was very into geography. He was a geography major and um, we didn't travel that much internationally, but we did a lot of uh, road trips through the United States. And so that really sparked my interest. I think I remember, you know, when I was a little kid, my dad would ask me geography questions from his National Geographic magazine. And um, I got second place in the third grade geography B when oh, I was in school. So, you know, just really like small things like that, I think um, shaped, shaped my viewpoint and, and kind of put that on the radar. But um, in terms of really the travel, I think my, my biggest or, or kind of the first time I felt like it was something that was really a passion and something I wanted to pursue later in life was when I did a trip with my French class to France when I was 16. And this was back before there were cell phones for travel. Or there weren't really reviews online that you could look up. There weren't maps. Um, you know, you couldn't just call a teacher if you got lost. So it was much harder. So um, we, we went to Paris and we went to all these places in France and did a homestay. And I just spent hours and hours before the trip pouring over maps and books and planning so that when we had free time, I took my friends and I was immediately like, okay, we're doing this, this, and this. And we oh, went off yeah. and, um, you know, took the train from Nice to Monaco and all these things. So for me, that was just really almost liberating and you know, I really like got a high off of being independent and being in a different country and um, having to figure things out for yourself. 
So I think at that point in time, that was when I was like, okay, this is really something I want to have as part of my life in the future. Yeah. What do you think? I mean, I have my personal views, but what do you think is the magic of experience as it relates to just being out of your comfort zone? What is what makes that so special and so kind of growth oriented? Yeah, I think it's in a way, maybe that immediate satisfaction. Um, let's say you're trying to go and, and go grocery shopping and looking for something in the grocery store and you walk in and you've never been here and you can't read anything in the aisles and you can't speak the language in the country, but you somehow manage to find it. Um, and you just have that feeling of like, yes, I did this. And it's a little thing, but it's, it's a big thing at the same time too. Yeah, absolutely. I, I love that. I think that there is just so much um, self-esteem that we build unintentionally when we put ourselves into positions of being uncomfortable, right? And there's nothing more to me enjoyable about being uncomfortable than being uncomfortable in a different country, in particularly one where the language is different and you're really being forced to to figure it out, right? You you might speak enough, a little bit of the language, maybe none. You are really kind of at the mercy of your intuition and then the kindness of, you know, strangers willing to help you basically. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. And the kindness of strangers is one thing that I found that has always turned out positive. It's always exceeded my expectations. Yeah. Um, I remember one time when I was traveling in Turkey, which was definitely a place where I didn't speak the language. Um, we were looking for some address of, I can't remember if it was a hotel or a restaurant or what, but, um, you know, we stopped this woman that looked young, looked like she might speak English on the street. And, um, she was like, oh, it's this way. Let me take you there. And she walked probably a mile and a half out of her way to take us to this address that we were looking for. Um, was just so nice and so friendly. And it was just one of those moments where you're like, this is what travel is all about. And this is the, the human touch of travel. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I, I, you know, I didn't start, I, I also like you or similarly, I was, my family was very, um, travel oriented domestically. When I was a child, I was very blessed to have being able to go in the summer for four to six weeks every summer with my family and travel around the country and through Mexico and, and Canada and even out to Hawaii, but never internationally. And so it was only after I turned, I don't know, I guess uh, somewhere in maybe college, maybe my twenties, um, I didn't do a formal college uh, abroad program. So can't exactly remember my first trip over, over the pond, but I, it, it was really eye-opening to me to think, oh my gosh, there's such a big world out here. And I'm such a small part of it um, in the bubble that is, you know, the United States is as wonderful as we might love our country. There's just so much, uh, so much else. How do you talk to students, for example, about the importance of understanding different cultures? How do you inspire that for them? Yeah, good question. Um, well, I think there's what's coming to mind right now is actually the the saying about needing to show students windows and um, mirrors, right? To have them see things that are similar to them and to have them see things that are different. And 
I think part of the time as a language teacher or a social studies teacher, it is to try to have them understand that at some level, we are all the same in many different cultures. Um, well, in all cultures, but you know, no matter what you're comparing. Um, but on the other hand, to also show them the differences and then to talk about those differences and to have them examine their own identity more also. So, um, you know, anything that they would be interested in that is kind of seen as, as cool or like popular teenage trends in other countries. Remember this was years and years ago now, but um, there was a really type, really cool type of dance um, in Germany that we showed a lot of students um, when I was doing some presentations in schools, this was for another job. Um, but that was something that was really interesting or in my French class recently, we just looked at three different types of wrestling in French speaking countries. Oh, <laughs> um, so, so that that's the kind of stuff that, you know, maybe not everyone does, but um, it's a very, very unique experience. Right now, actually in Colombia, I just had one recently, um, the, I guess, unofficial or official national sport of Colombia is something called Tejo. And it's a little bit kind of like horseshoes. Mm -hmm. You're throwing uh, a metal kind of round disc um, and you're throwing it at a circle, just like you would throw a horseshoe about the same distance, maybe a little further. And um, there's actually a metal ring and gunpowder. And so the goal is of course, to make the gunpowder hit the metal ring and smash it between the the rock and the metal and it will explode. Um, yeah, and I, I actually had not really heard of this at all before I came to Columbia, but um, you know, unique things like that, I think is, are something that all students are really interested in. Yeah, yeah. And absolutely. that's what you can talk about. Okay, well, what is what was the culture behind it? How did this get started? Right. You know, how in the world does a game like that become a thing? Right? <laughs> exactly. Yeah, that's amazing. So tell us, um, give us some more examples of unique situations you've had in the different areas that uh, different countries that you've taught in and, and some of the, some of the meaningful ones that, that you've had. Sure. Um, I guess, let's see, do you want to hear the the funny, the bloopers or the- Yeah, for sure. I love the bloopers. Okay. Um, well, one time um, this was, so in addition to actually teaching at international schools, in most international schools, there are trips with students to different places. So I led a number of those with small groups. And, you know, I just love doing that because you really get to see the kids seeing a different culture and learning about it. Um, and it's, it's the ultimate kind of out of school experience. But um, we were in Berlin and, you know, in Berlin, they have all the kind of World War II memorabilia um, that people are selling. And so students were looking at a table that was kind of out in a park um, and buying some hats and, and different things. And um, a student bought or was trying on a pair of handcuffs because they have all these old things, right? And he was trying it on and he, he handcuffed his hands together or his friend handcuffed his hands together. Um, and then when it was time to go, um, he 
tried to use the key and the handcuffs wouldn't come off. The key oh. went all the way around in the circle. And so something was broken there. Um, and the seller basically gave us a look like, uh oh, I can't help you. Um, and so we have a student that's stuck in handcuffs. Oh, no. <laughs> and so um, the student and I left the group and we went to try to find someone that could help us. And I had seen a bike shop uh, a block or so back. And so we went to the bike shop and the guy was very nice and, you know, got out his tools and started tinkering with the handcuffs. And um, he, he turned something and it went click, click, click. And the student says, ow, <laughs> and he made it tighter. Oh, um, so now the student is like, okay, ow, I have to get this off. Um, so we finally found a police station um, in one of the main tourist areas. And they came out with the jaws of life, <laughs> and the giant cutter, uh, like bolt cutter, and was able to, um, to cut it off. But, you know, I, neither of us spoke German. I, I remember, you know, going up to the policeman and just kind of pointing to the student and saying, wir haben ein Problem. Right. <laughs> so, oh my gosh. Yeah. And it was all okay. And the student was totally fine, but it was definitely an adventure. Oh my gosh. That is, <laughs> I would not want to be, I would have such claustrophobia around being handcuffed uh, and, and expecting to get out and not getting out. Um, that would be, that'd be devastating. Yeah. So tell me, uh, you know, if you were to talk to, you know, a, a budding teacher, a college student, for example, and she looks at you or he looks at you and says, that's the life I want. How, how do you go from point A to, to point B? How do you get into, uh, get on a, a trajectory to be working and thriving in other countries as an educator? Yeah, that's a great question. So. I think one good thing is that the field is certainly getting more and more open. Um, there are more and more international jobs and opportunities nowadays. But um, I would definitely encourage the person to really just never hesitate to apply, never hesitate to dream and to look at things. My, um, my job, so I ended up actually doing something that was um, not the norm, um, because as I said, I, I got my teaching license after I graduated because I wasn't quite sure that I wanted to teach. Um, but I knew as I was getting my teaching license that I wanted to teach abroad. Mm -hmm. And so I actually ended up contacting this boarding school in Switzerland because I had worked after I studied abroad in France, I, I worked for the summer at a camp in Switzerland, which again, I just found on the internet and applied and happened to get the job. And so um, I, I knew that I wanted to be back in Switzerland. And so I had a number of different schools kind of on my radar and happened to apply. And this one um, agreed to have me do my student teaching and then do some boarding duties and work as an intern. And then I ended up getting a full-time job the next year. So it's really a lot of putting yourself out there and um, not being afraid to apply but also trying to get as much experience in certain things that you can. Um, certainly anyone that has certification in teaching English language learners would, um, that's obviously looked on very favorably because you're certainly going to be teaching students who have English um, as not their first language. 
Mm -hmm. um, and yeah, I think making contacts honestly is probably more or at least as important as your GPA or um, what you study exactly. Mm -hmm. But you definitely want to get a, a teaching license before you go abroad. Um, most schools that are international schools that are true international schools and not just like a, you know, an after school English school in the country, mm -hmm. um, they're going to want two years of experience, usually um, ideally international experience and um, a teaching license. Right. That being said, some international schools do hire for positions that are not um, teaching, for example, counseling positions or athletic director, um, marketing. So there are some opportunities for students that are not necessarily going into education. Yeah, that's a really good point. Um, you know, I dreamed for a long time about, um, you know, working abroad and I've never, I, I be perfectly honest, I've never pursued it, but it's always been something that's on the back burner. And I've never really thought about I didn't think now that I've left the classroom, I didn't think I wanted to go back into the classroom. And that seemed like the low hanging fruit on how to, how to embrace that. But there are a lot of other opportunities now, especially kind of in this, you know, kind of global economy, right. Where, where they, the jobs are much more fluid um, in terms of, of the different opportunities out there. Yes, definitely. Yeah. So flipping gears a little bit, what would you say to students who maybe have not had, and they look at someone like you, or they look at students who get this opportunity to, to go abroad or to study or whatever, and they just feel like I, I've never had that opportunity. How do I, you know, how do you make the, I don't think there's any substitute for actually experiencing another country um, it, yourself, but how do you make um, cultural awareness part of a teaching philosophy, even in a home country? Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, I guess first I want to just recognize that because that's a really important point um, that being able to travel and being able to do all these things, it is, there is a lot of privilege in being able to travel, right? And, uh, you know, I, I certainly recognize that. Um, but I think even students that are not able to travel for whatever reason, um, whether it's financial, whether it's uh, that they're undocumented um, or they have family that they can't leave, whatever it is, um, there are so many multicultural areas in the United States. And there are a lot of really great programs that go within the United States and offer more or less an immersion experience. Um, when I was in college, this was kind of international, but um, we, we did what was called a YMCA immersion program. And we drove as college students through the night in the, the most packed car that I've ever been in in my life um, <laughs> to San Diego and stayed at like a YMCA surf camp in the freezing cold in the winter in California. Um, and learned about border issues. And so we had lots of different interviews with different groups that represented all different um, different aspects and different sides of the issue. We actually were able to tour the border. Um, and then we kind of did the same thing 
when we went to Tijuana and crossed to the other side. Um, but I know they had many, many other trips that were looking at different areas of the United States. And those are things that, you know, anyone can do even in your own city, right? If mm -hmm. you have a multicultural city, um, how can you get involved in groups, uh, you know, visit restaurants, um, volunteer, there's so many different opportunities to just be in areas um, with groups of people that are different from you that you maybe wouldn't normally do. Right. Yeah, I think that's really powerful. There are, you're right, so many ways to open your mind to uh, cultural variances. If we take advantage of the opportunities that are around us, we tend to all stay in our bubble so much, right? We we go with people that look like us and think like us. And, and I think, you know, in the current political climate, climate in America, that's even more prevalent that we tend to really ostracize ourselves with uh, groups that are exactly like us instead of really opening up. And I think that's one of the most powerful things about travel, right, is that you're forced to open up because you're in there, you're in someone else's world, right? But if you if you can't do that, if it's not part of um, the chapter of life that you're in or the privilege that you have at this moment, those are really great suggestions on how to, how to get out and make that part of your world, uh, even your world and your home. So really great, thank you. Um, and so I'm gonna ask you the question I ask all of my guests. Um, do you have an early education memory that was just really impactful for you? Something that just really stuck with you? Um, I think probably looking back, my third grade teacher, like there isn't necessarily one specific memory from that year, but she was very into social studies, Mrs. Overland. And she, um, we, we did different units throughout history like ancient Egypt and um, Greece and middle, medieval times. And we had some amazing field trips. I remember we went to see like an armorer um, and got to try on armor when we were studying medieval times. So cool. um, we learned the Greek alphabet, like we would sing the Greek alphabet in the hall because we were so excited about it, um, which, you know, is such a totally random thing. And, you know, certainly it, teaching was a little bit different back then, but um, to get third graders to like be so excited about singing the Greek alphabet, <laughs> you know, I mean, she was just an amazing teacher and had an amazing way of motivating students. That is awesome. I love that example so much. It's, you know, I really do believe it's those, you know, I ask that question of every single guest. And one of the things that happens throughout um, is it's it always ties back to really two themes. One is someone who individually made someone seem seen or heard, made them feel like they were valued, that they were seen, that they were heard in a way that perhaps they had felt a little bit undervalued or, or unseen. Um, or on the other side, it's something where the teacher or the mentor had such passion and brought that in an experiential way that you couldn't help but be, uh, that it couldn't help from be, but be contagious, right? And so they would kind of garner that energy and spread it to their students in such a way. And these themes go throughout, um, this will be our 33rd episode of Dissecting Education. And I can't think of a single episode that don't fall into one of those two buckets. So I love that, that story so much. 
So tell us more about where you see kind of the future of education from your lens, from the lens that is highly unique in terms of international and teaching in different countries. Where do you see the the good, the bad, the ugly of what we have coming down the pipe for education? Yeah. Um, let's see. On one level, I mean, certainly more technology. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the same time, um, especially as a language teacher who you know struggles with students constantly using Google Translate or students being like, oh, I have you know the Google image translator now. Like, why do I even need to learn the language? I just have the technology to be able to do um, translation. Um, I think I am also kind of pulling away from technology in a bit um, and kind of going back to, especially after COVID and after having taught online where we really didn't have those human connections, Mm -hmm. um, going back to those human connections and wanting to make sure that students are feeling valued, they're feeling like they're a member of the community and that they are actually using the language to communicate with each other. Um, I think in the future, we'll probably see smaller, more like experiential learning experiences. Mm -hmm. But again, there's a big difference between private school and public school. Obviously, when I've been teaching abroad, they've all been, well, Spain was a public school, but all the other schools have been private schools. And um, when I went back to teach in the States, I was in public school in the same district that I was in uh, when I was a child. And I remember at one point, you know, the district has changed a lot. Um, The demographics have really shifted. And I think the district is doing a great job. The teachers are doing an amazing job. But at the same time, part of it was just heartbreaking to see um, that my experience, my amazing experience with school was not the same experience that kids today are getting. Yeah. And, you know, also I'm sure, obviously I was a student before and (laughs) I was a teacher now seeing everything, but um, that was really hard. And so I think you know, in the future, obviously there is going to be a bigger gap even, you know, those that have technology and those that don't, I think. And the jobs that we're going to see are going to be more critical thinking. And then the lower wage jobs, I think are really gonna be replaced by, you know, I don't wanna say robots, but really I think that's what's gonna happen to some extent, we're already seeing that. Yeah, I think that, you know, I had um, a wonderful guest on this, uh, on the previous episode, where we talked about ed tech specifically, and and kind of the future. And her feeling was, you know, the fear that educators are going to be replaced by technology is unfounded, because we always need the human connection. In fact, the technology is only as relevant as the human who can connect it to experience and to relevancy and all of that. However, the, our need to embrace and utilize what is available to us is really going to be the key, right? What's available to us can, can certainly enhance the, our capacity to, you know, 
kind of innovate and think out of the box around, you know, how we educate um, and how students perceive information because they're going to continue to grasp technology regardless of whether or not we have it in schools, right? I mean, students are the first to, they're the early adopters. And it's funny because uh, there was a study and this was a few years ago, but that talked about students who are considered very highly technology uh, adaptive and highly technology advanced, but still don't know how to use an Excel spreadsheet, right? Which is still a core foundation of the business world, right? Excel's still are part of almost every business job in some sense, um, every, at least every um, kind of office or white collar job. And there is, you know, so there's a, a need to not just take for granted that technology exists and they'll figure it out, but really to still think about how we integrate that and we train on it. And we don't um, just pretend that someone taught them along the way. Mm -hmm. Yes, that is very true. So yeah, we definitely, we need the human, the human connection for sure. Well, it has been super wonderful having you on the show. And this has been such a, a fun deep dive into you know, the world of, of global education. As we start to wrap up, any, you know, any final thoughts on kind of how we can take maybe lessons from what you see in other countries and bring it back to the US or just integrate into classrooms? Any lessons for teachers to integrate into classrooms? Yeah, let's see. Um... I think one thing that is possible for schools all over the world is using an international curriculum, like the International Baccalaureate, for example. Mm -hmm. um, that is one that has been popular in some places in the United States. Um, you know, some schools have have adopted it because it's quite rigorous, mm -hmm. um, and it is pretty strict in terms of what classes you need to teach and take. Um, but I think there are other options for integrating things like that. Um, you know, integrating, say, social justice standards or um, other standards that are really looking at, um, you know, really giving the curriculum a global perspective, like um, the UN Sustainable Development Goals. Those are all things that can be integrated into really any level um, in any country. And so I think the more that we can do things like that, the better uh, prepared our students are going to be to interact globally, even if they're still you know, living in a rural area in the United States. I think that's great. That's, that's really, you know, utilizing the resources that are out there and bringing in those global perspectives is really powerful. So that's a great, a great tip. Well, do you have anything else that you'd like to promote or tell people how they can get in touch with you if they'd like more information or any budding students who want to follow in your career path? Yeah, sure. Um, I'd be happy to talk to any students that are interested uh, in teaching internationally. Um, my website is growingglobalcitizens.com and you can find my contact information there. I'm also Growing Global Citizens on Instagram and then Growing Global Citizens, but with dots in between the words on Facebook. And um, on my website, I do have a number of travel articles and a number of articles for language teachers. And we didn't even really get a chance to talk about this, but I have been teaching heritage speakers uh, back in the United States. So students that have um, either been born in another country and came to the United States at a young age or were born in the US, but uh, speak Spanish at home. And so I also offer a course for teachers on um, how to teach Spanish speakers 
um, that are heritage speakers or in a dual language immersion program. Oh, I love that so much. Um, well, before we go, let's dive into that for just one second. Oh, okay. <laughs> we, can, we can take a left turn here. Uh, tell us, tell us about that experience. How did you, um, how did you come to do that work specifically? Yeah. So I've always had a, an immersion background. Um, I've always been really interested in that style of language learning. I worked at Concordia Language Villages as a counselor when I was, uh, I guess, in college mostly for a number of summers and really felt that that was the best way to learn a language was to learn content in the language and not just learn the language as an extra class. And so um, when I was in Madrid, actually, it was kind of the same. It was a bilingual immersion school. And then when I came back to the States, um, my district happened to have a program that was expanding. And so they, they really needed teachers. Uh, in the US, there's a desperate need for Spanish teachers everywhere. Um, so if you are someone that's going into education and you can speak Spanish, you are pretty much guaranteed a job. I would definitely recommend that. Um, and yeah, so I ended up um, teaching actually fifth grade for the first year, but um, I was on an emergency license and that was pretty disastrous because <laughs> I had never taught fifth grade before. Um, I, at the same time, learned so much as a person. Um, I was really forced to examine uh, my privilege and where I'd come from and kind of all my thoughts about uh, equity and so it was incredibly tough year, but um, certainly one where there were lots of lessons learned. But then after that year, I was able to get a job teaching high school um, for the same kind of students in the immersion program, but that had come up and had taken Spanish classes since kindergarten. So yeah, it's really a great program in the sense that it's giving our kids the ability to be proud of who they are and to be proud to be bilingual because, you know, some of our, our kids, the stories they would tell about, um, you know, oh, a man in Walmart told my three-year-old sister not to speak Spanish because it's America and we speak English here. Yeah. Yeah. So, I, actually, I have a niece who her mother is Filipino and she speaks five languages. And my niece was not taught any of them because the goal was to have her fully integrated into America in a, and be kind of quote unquote, a typical American kid. And I hate that for her now because I really do think that we're such a global society. And I, I do understand the idea that, you know, you want your kids to be accepted and, and not bullied. And, you know, there's a whole host of reasons why families make that decision. But I, I think it, you know, I didn't have that privilege. My parents are English speakers only, and I'm an English speaker only. And I really, um, I wish for her that she had had that opportunity to learn, um, at least a couple of those languages, the more, at least the more common ones. Some of those are, are, um, Philippine dialects that may not be as useful, but some of them are, you know, Portuguese and Spanish and, you know, some other languages that were very useful. So, um, yeah, so I, I, I struggle with that, uh, that frustration on behalf of kind of these children of immigrants who their parents were really doing the best that they, that they knew how to do and trying to make the best decisions. But in the end, um, you know, what we wish for them is, is something slightly different. Right, right. And that's, that's been our society, right? That's been the idea of originally the melting pot, like everyone comes together and 
you know, to be English, you, or to be American, you speak English, which is certainly not the way it should be. But unfortunately, that's the way it has been. Um, I think we're definitely, well, in most places out of that by now. Um, mm -hmm. But it is, it is ironic, of course, because, you know, we have kids that come from other places, and then we tell them, or they get the message that they have to just learn English. And then at the same time, in high school, it's like, oh, you know, well, if you're privileged and white, now you should learn another language, right? Mm -hmm. So it's, it's ironic. Yeah, it really is. All right. Well, with that, I will close us out. Thank you for, for taking that left turn with us. That was really, really oh, interesting. Yeah. And, and, and a really another can of worms for yeah, sure. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's a really, um, it's a really interesting and timely topic. So I appreciate you uh, indulging me there, but um, well, thank you so much for being on the show. We really appreciate it and um, love hearing your perspective. And um, I will put all of that and the contact information in the show notes for anyone who wants to get in touch with you. All right. Sounds good. Thank you, Melanie. Thank you. This has been another episode of Dissecting Education, a production of In Pursuit Research, outcomes-driven, impact-focused. What are you in pursuit of?